I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Agnes, long time no see. Hello, Ben. How are you? Yeah, very well, very well. Where have you been? Well, I've just, just this minute, got off a sleeper train from the highlands of Scotland. Oh, joyful. How long was the journey? How long was the journey? The journey was 11 hours, but I was looked after very nicely by... um, a sleeper guard who greeted me on the platform yesterday with, hello, Miss Frimpson, how's your father? Which made me feel like I'm living in a Barbara Pym novel. Connections. It is all a bit Downton Abbey, that. <laughs> <laughs> he bought me my porridge this morning, even though he told me that my father always takes it in the dining car. Um, anyway, yes, I've come back right. from very snowy Scotland. where really? it is Yes. Loads of snow, Ben. Loads of snow. Exciting. Did you ski? I can't ski. You can't ski. That's my one defence against being really posh. Because I, <laughs> I was can... going to say, because the whole of that anecdote was uh, pretty revealing. <laughs> Agnes, woman of the people, for instance. Tells you all you need to know about. <laughs> no, my defence is the that. Editor of the world. Because <laughs> I can sail, and my horse riding is patchy, but okay. Mm. So I just I can't ski because then the the posh triptych is not complete. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, how's your week in Ben? <laughs> it's been lovely. It's been very down to earth. Um, yeah. What have you been up to? Oh, just preparing for a conference that we're going to in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. Very exciting. Which is uh, incredibly exciting. Basically, it's one of the biggest gatherings of foreign policy and international affairs experts. Uh, about 6,000 of us descending on... Descending on uh, San Francisco. I say us. I'm not a foreign policy expert, but oh, I will be there and <laughs> I'll You'll be watching be what's going on. Anyway, um, who did you speak to this week, Ben? This week I spoke to Rob Yates, who is a consultant with the Centre for Global Health here at Chatham House, about a pretty appalling process of medical detention, which is particularly prevalent in Africa, whereby patients in local public hospitals are not allowed to leave and are detained in their wards if they can't pay their fees which is really shocking and and the scale of it is is particularly shocking as well it Um, does feel like a sort of dickensian debtors prison something out of david copperfield absolutely absolutely so i spoke to nicole el kawaja who is a program coordinator on the middle east and north africa program here at chatham house about an article that she's written for the world today on lgbtq plus rights in the Middle East, specifically focused on Beirut and Lebanon. Fascinating. And she has some good news for us? She did. It ended on a positive note. Let's have a listen. Right, so now I'm joined by Rob Yates, who is the project director of the Universal Health Coverage Policy Forum with the Centre on Global Health Security at Chatham House. Rob, thanks very much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. So we're here today to talk about your uh, research paper, which was published in December last year, co-authored with Tom Brooks and Eloise Whitaker, which was titled Hospital Detentions for Non-Payment of Fees, A Denial of Rights and Dignity. You also wrote about this recently in The World Today in an article called Confined Behind Bars. So hospital detentions, could you explain basically what this issue is? It's uh, it's an issue of serious importance, but one which may not have been spoken about much before. So 
in yes. lightness, please. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And, and um, well, quite a, a shocking issue, uh, obviously, as you can imagine, the the situation that um, in a number of countries, uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people each year who are being detained against their will, you know, locked up in, in hospitals, um, really for the simple reason that they can't afford their medical bills, that, you know, they, they've incurred costs uh, when they've been admitted uh, to, to hospital, uh, have been unable to pay their, their healthcare user fees. And then the hospital has said, well, basically, you're not going home until, you know, you you pay. And in many instances, the families are too poor to pay. And, and then you get this standoff. And in effect, they're kept hostage uh, until their, their families come up with the money. And what's particularly disturbing is that, that this is very um, often associated with women who have had emergency cesarean sections, really to save their lives um, and their babies' lives, obviously. And, you know, these operations, um, you know, sort of typically will cost up 100 maybe $200. And that's, you know, it's quite simply unaffordable for, for poor families. So a very high proportion of these medical detainees, you might say medical hostages, are women and babies. So you mentioned that this problem particularly affects African countries. Could mm. you talk more about where the issue is most prevalent? And could you perhaps um, also explain sort of what scale we're yes. talking about mm. here? Mm. Well, it proved a difficult subject to research because a lot of this is in effect illegal, you know, that, that um, it contravenes national and international laws to, to lock up people without charge sometimes for, for months on end. Um, you know, there, we even sort of came across one case of a, a baby that had spent the first 16 months of its life uh, in, oh in this goodness. situation, you know, therefore sort of walking and talking and, and you know, had never sort of known, known freedom. So doing research on this is difficult because no one really wants to acknowledge it's happening and no one really keeps any statistics on it. Um, but piecing together um, some uh, academic research and, you know, particularly uh, finding stories on the internet, you know, the Googling stories around medical detentions, medical hostages, we were finding it was definitely more prevalent in some countries than others. And I would say that in sheer numbers, you know, the greatest numbers are in Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Cameroon, um, we've also found many cases in Zimbabwe, Kenya, Ghana, but it isn't exclusively African. You know, we, we found some cases in India, particularly in some private hospitals, even in Indonesia too. And um, this practice was also happening in Turkey until about sort of 10 or so years ago. And in fact, the Turkish health reforms were triggered when the president stopped this practice. So it is pretty widespread. Now, when you come to trying to assess the numbers, as I say, you know, no one really keeps any statistics on this. So we've had to do some extrapolations. But we, we came across one report from Congo suggesting that 20% of babies born in health units were being detained for a period of time. So you work the numbers up and in Congo alone, that comes to hundreds of thousands. Mm. So we think that it is that order of magnitude. It may be more, uh, but we need to do more research. From your research, did you have a sense of what really was driving this? Is it a case-by-case, hospital-by-hospital policy? Or did you get the sense that actually this was being condoned at a higher level? Is, mm. is a government's complicit in this? Are they turning a blind eye? 
Yeah, and I think that you need to sort of go back a bit into the history to see, you know, how has this situation evolved? Mm. And I certainly don't want to give the impression it's like this in every country. I mean, there are countries like Malawi, in, uh, which is a, uh, quite a poor country in uh, southern Africa, which has never charged healthcare use of fees. And, you know, this, this practice doesn't happen. Mm. And, you know, that's true of a good number of other countries as well. So it's it's tended to develop basically in countries that have a high proportion of health financing raised through healthcare user fees, mm. which again are sort of related to countries that tend to underfinance their health system. So public financing is very low, and then the financing burden has been pushed on to households. It's also the case that, you know, these countries tend to have quite weak governance systems. So the, 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 I think everyone acknowledges that, you know, this practice is illegal and bad, but then in some countries, you know, where, where perhaps their, their health systems, governance uh, systems are uh, less strong, mm. then it's very difficult to uh, impose restrictions on stuff like this happening in, in, in hospitals. So in effect, you are saying that, that the health uh, authorities are turning a blind eye to it and largely sort of saying to hospitals, you raise mo- what money you can from the population whichever way you choose to do so and you know you can get on with it and and you know that but then don't expect much financing off us mm. there was a one very famous case or a country where i think you know this was first exposed and that was in burundi about 10 years ago and human rights watch did a, a very impressive piece of research really showing that basically the the, the peripheral health units weren't receiving any public funding mm. at all and so, therefore, the health workers were being expected to raise funds from the population. And then without strong governance, you know, these practices start coming in, you know, that, that uh, and you might say that and if it's like gangster style health financing, you know, sort of people being held hostage. And it's, you know, sort of, you know, you, you come up with the cash, we'll, we'll, we'll release you. It's so interesting sort of contrasting this experience with the UK. Mm, I mean, mm, it sounds obvious, mm, but like mm. it's almost like healthcare that's free at the point of delivery mm. is just such a truth in the UK mm-hmm. and just such a sort of fact mm. of life. Could you tell us uh, a bit about the history of why user fees have become so so common in these countries? Mm. These are countries that are absolutely crippled by mm. poverty. I mean, we see it on the news all the time, and yet they're also being asked to pay for their health care. Mm. Yeah. It's a very, very important point to, to raise, particularly going back into the history about how this has evolved, because it's, I think it's very easy to sort of look at these situations and, and sort of point the finger maybe at the health workers who are detaining people and the governments that are turning a blind eye to it. But it's important to take a step further back and say, how did we get into this situation? And here the role of the international donor community is is very bad. Many of these countries at the time of independence, uh, they try to start universal free health services uh, like we have here in the UK. But then very much in the sort of 1970s and 1980s, when the orthodoxy in, in development circles you know, turned more towards structural adjustment policies and African governments basically being told by the likes of the World Bank and the IMF to cut public spending, to slash public expenditure, including on health and education services. Mm. And as part of the prescription, saying it's perfectly legitimate, in fact, we insist that you try and take uh, payments directly off the population. Mm. 
And this is very well known um, in international health circles, the structural adjustment policies and the user fees. But also we need to look at the role of our governments, you know, that, that, you know, it was very much the American government, the the British government under Margaret Thatcher that was was pushing this sort of right wing ideology on uh, on these countries that they ought to sort of be charging. Um, And this created the the whole user fees phenomenon. Mm. And what you then saw was a dramatic reduction in utilisation of services, particularly by poor people in Africa, so very low uptake of services, um, public budgets being cut. And I say that, you know, the, the, the message then going to help frontline services, it's perfectly legitimate for you to get as much money from the population as you like, basically by whatever means. Mm. And this is the symptom. You know, this is where this ends up, you know, yeah. sort of when, when you sort of give um, health workers autonomy to do what they like, and I'm not saying it happens everywhere, you know, this is the point, but but it has become so institutionalised in some countries uh, that you, it's reached these sort of epidemic proportions. And particularly we came across a number of stories in Nigeria where it's so well known that this is the norm that politicians in the run-up to elections will visit a local hospital with, with a lot of money and go around releasing patients from, from hospitals in a very flamboyant way with a lot of media coverage, mm. just showing how much they care that they've released people from, from hospitals. And we even came across one bizarre example of where a, a first lady, a, the, the governor's wife, had gone to a facility uh, released a lot of patients and it was plastered all over the papers that she was a, a hero for, for doing this, releasing people from hospitals run by her husband, mm. uh, which does seem quite extraordinary, I, I agree. Um, but this is just how entrenched this has become, but it can change very easily. Yeah, let's talk about the ways this can change then. Um, so in, in your uh, research paper, you outlined several practical steps that can mm. be taken that would sort of mitigate this problem. Could you yeah. tell us a bit more yeah. about those? Well, one of the most obvious straightforward things is to just ban it. You know, the, 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 <laughs> to, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, a lot of health issues and health systems issues are quite complicated. But this is a flagrant abuse of human rights, you know, to lock up women and babies in, in hospitals. It just flouts so many rules and, and norms on, on uh, human rights that it's quite a straightforward thing for a political leader to to ban this, outlaw it, and, and say that they will take action against any health facilities that, that do this. Mm. And there are examples of this happening. As I say, in Burundi, when the Human Rights Watch report got to the president, he was so horrified, he went to go and see, saw it was true, and pretty much banned the practice overnight. He then subsequently you know, recognised that he needed to increase public financing remove healthcare user fees for women and children, which he did within six months. And you saw the number of babies born in Burundian hospitals go from one in five to about 80% over over two or three years. Mm. So it's actually quite straightforward, this one. And as we say in the report, you know, the two major things are one for a political leader to ban it and then back that up with increased public financing and improved financial access. And that sorts that problem out. It's been nearly four months now since your report came out. Mm. Has there been any development on this? Has anything changed or how has your paper been received? Well, sense? it's been very interesting because it has received a lot of media coverage, uh, which mm. we've been you know, sort of delighted about, really, because at, at the end of the day, this is a political issue. It needs to get to, you know, to, to, to politicians for them to recognise that this is wrong. 
And we have seen that, particularly in some of the countries where we, we report, uh, this has been getting into the media, particularly in Kenya. There are some Kenyan MPs who now have taken this up, and in particular a Kenyan MP who has been filmed in hospitals releasing patients and berating doctors, you know, saying, you know, why is this person locked up here? You you, you must release them. Mm. So it, this is the way to tackle this problem, really, through, through political pressure. And as I say, that we've been delighted with the amount of uh, media attention it's also attracted. But it was also um, interesting, there was a big universal health coverage conference in Tokyo just before Christmas, where all the dis- discussion these days is around universal health coverage, everybody accessing the health services they need without financial hardship. And, of course, this issue is one flagrant example of that not happening. And the the senior director at the World Bank, uh, Tim Evans, in this very public meeting in in Tokyo, explicitly mentioning this and saying, you know, this phenomenon happens, this isn't right, we need to get away from this. And, you know, I think it's admirable that, you know, sort of people working in the World Bank now have recognised, you know, sort of the failings maybe of, you know, their predecessors uh, 20, 30 years ago and, and really saying, we made a mistake on this and, and, you know, we need to be moving away from this. Uh, the president of the World Bank has been speaking out very clearly in favour of public financing now. So I think that you have seen a lot of the agencies changing their tunes on on this now and and are more aware of this. But I do still feel that this is a neglected topic, and I think a lot of civil society organisations should be making more of this. You know, particularly mm. those say associated with children and and women's uh, health services and women's rights. You would think this is a pretty straightforward thing to to be, you know, lambasting governments on for these failings. But there seems to be this timidity uh, in taking this issue up, which I think is a shame. And and if we can help give voice to, you know, to activists on this, I think we're doing something useful. Well, hopefully we're adding a voice right now. Thanks very much for joining us, Rob. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. So I'm here with Nicole El Khwaja, who is a programme coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House. Hello, Nicole. Hi, Agnes. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming to talk to us today. And we're here to talk about an article that is coming up that Nicole has written for The World Today on LGBTQ plus rights, specifically in Lebanon. So what has happened that means that we, we're now talking about this, Nicole? So... Over the past 20 odd years, um, the LGBTQ plus community in Lebanon specifically and the Middle East more broadly has been gaining a bit of traction and kind of gradually moving from a more underground presence to having established NGOs and increasingly active, like more public activism. But it was only last year in May 2017 that Beirut held the first um, Pride Week in any Arab city in the region. Um, which was seen as a really big step for the LGBTQ plus community in both Lebanon and the region. So it was a so it was a Pride Week held across different bars or restaurants. It was it was it was quite public. It was yeah. So it it was hosted by several different venues and clubs and even some of the NGO offices, I believe. And but the the downside is that it only took place in Beirut, mm-hmm. um, which also kind of speaks to a bigger issue within the LGBTQ plus movement in Lebanon, at least, but also the region more broadly. Is that there is an urban and r- rural split, whereby 
I mean, you're much more likely to get a certain degree of acceptance or openness in cities than you are in other parts of the country. And so it was very specific to Beirut, but it did take place in different parts of the city as well. It might be quite useful to actually sort of understand the sort of legal status of being within the LGBTQ plus community in Lebanon. So is it illegal to be openly gay or, um, you know, do the police try and crack down on this or...? Sure. So legally, the homosexuality isn't defined as being illegal in the Lebanese Penal Code, but there is Article 534, um, which states that unnatural sexual acts are illegal, or so they criminalize unnatural sexual acts, um, which is quite a loose definition, which means that often it's left to the discretion of individual judges persecuting certain cases. Uh, so there have been instances in the past where judges have overturned a certain conviction or just dropped a case by either referencing other parts of Lebanon's penal codes to do with personal rights or individual freedoms or just stating that same-sex acts are not unnatural and therefore this law doesn't apply. So it is quite vague in Lebanon and that often has been used to the advantage of LGBTQ plus uh, individuals but it's still it's still used to prosecute people. Are people picked up by police in public or are they are they reported by family members or friends or is it is it sort of a cultural issue you know against this the idea of being homosexual or is it or is it coming from a specific group there's definitely a cultural aspect to it i mean responses vary in terms of family members so you can have some families potentially reporting their family members just for suspecting even them of belonging to the LGBTQ plus community or even supporting it sometimes. But some people are accepting, some people are not. But there is just generally, it's a bit of a taboo in the region and that's just largely due to a lack of visibility and more reliance on like tradition and traditional gender roles. And uh, religion also has a role to play as well in the region. And so people do reference religion as part of a reason for rejecting LGBTQ plus individuals. So so there is there is an element of social stigma in addition to the legal issues. And so you also see that translate to police action where often they will just crack down on certain bars or clubs, not just in Lebanon, but across the region. So there are examples of that happening in Egypt, most prominently actually over the past year or so. Um, the LGBTQ plus community in Egypt has come under a lot of uh, stress. So it is quite quite arbitrary in terms of police action as well and sometimes people will get picked up on the streets just for just for being suspected just for you know maybe walking a bit unusually or just based on mannerisms that are completely unfounded and then they will be subject to harassment by the police in detention and yeah just unfounded abuse really you mentioned that some judges have not convicted on various things and I imagine the judiciary are by and large older yeah is there a sort of generational split in this community you know do you is the LGBTQ plus community quite young I think probably to a large extent it is mm-hmm. um in terms of the the part of the community that is actively advocating for change I think are, is relatively young so there is definitely a generational consideration here on the other hand you have members of the LGBTQ plus community that have 
lived as LGBTQ plus individuals for some portion of their adult life. It really started being active in the 90s. Just more broadly, in terms of the generational gap, it is definitely harder for older generations to be accepting Mm -hmm. of LGBTQ plus individuals. And so that is definitely a struggle that um, the current community faces within the region. And that's something that is, again, just going to take time. But you definitely do see more of the younger generation being more accepting. But then, again, you also have a large portion that isn't. So it is really kind of about exposure, what you choose to to accept and get on board with at the end of the day. So Because, I mean, you have information uh, supporting either side. So, yeah, so again, it is down to kind of an individual to make that decision to support these freedoms, um, regardless of their generation, I think. If pride was able to happen, that implies that there are safe places or locations or welcoming places to that community and also presumably that the police turned a blind eye if they knew this was happening you know they could have gone in and raided it so are there sort of specific groups or communities where members of the lgbtq plus community can feel sort of safe yeah i would say so there there are quite a large number of ngos now in lebanon focusing on supporting lgbtq plus individuals They have worked really hard to create a safe space for people, both physically and online as well. So in in Lebanon, it's quite special to be able to have that physical presence and have those gatherings of individuals. And there are some bars that have historically been known for being a safe space for LGBTQ plus um, individuals. And they have largely been kind of spared from any kind of crackdowns. And I think the police more broadly were a bit hands off with with Pride in Lebanon just because the LGBTQ plus community has made a large effort to be considerate of the local environment. They've tried to adapt their initiatives to that. They're not trying to to push local communities further than they are willing to go. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly with the police, they're not trying to be confrontational. They're mm-hmm. just kind of trying to gradually establish a presence in order to be accepted rather than yeah being confrontational. Um, and I think they kind of see this as more of a long game than just yeah trying to push things through. And I think it just more broadly relates to a wider push in in the country, but also again across the region uh, for civil rights, for example, women's rights, migrant workers' rights, and just you see like the LGBTQ plus community fitting in within that and having a presence, for example, at the women's march in Beirut mm-hmm. last week, just signs supporting transgender individuals and just the LGBTQ plus community more broadly. So it is definitely part of a bigger, bigger movement. I mean, you mentioned in the article the role of the internet as well in this sort of development of civil rights and especially for the LGBTQ plus community. I mean, what what, what does that look, look like? What effect has that had, do you think? Um, so I think historically the internet has played quite a large role when Visibility was just not an option. So through online forums, it's just a form of expressing solidarity, just connecting with people that are similar to you within that community. And then now it has moved more to kind of Twitter, Facebook, really based on that and trying to unify people, again, increase visibility. And just in countries where you cannot have, like you cannot mobilize LGBTQ plus communities, online is another option to kind of just just bring people together and just, yeah, provide support in a way that you can't in the real world. Um, so the virtual world does provide 
provide that option. And you mentioned earlier that there have been real crackdowns on the LGBTQ plus community in Egypt specifically. Why, why do you think that is? I think that's part of a broader crackdown within Egypt on Mm -hmm. civil rights more generally that's been taking place over the past couple of years. Because I think, and this is broadening out massively, but, you know, Russia, for example, and Chechnya's recent, well, the last couple of years, crackdown on on the idea of LGBT rights has been very much a sort of anti-Western view. It's sort of like, how can we show that we are different from the West? And, you know, if you're dealing with quite conservative communities, that is sort of an easy way of doing it. But, I mean, obviously has been absolutely horrendous for those individuals, especially in Chechnya. So I wonder whether that across the Middle East is a similar similar sort of thing or... Yeah, absolutely. There is definitely an element of anti-Western sentiment when it comes to cracking down on the LGBTQ plus community. Sometimes, it, well, a common statement is that it's homosexuality is imported or same-sex relations are imported and it, it is not um, kind of native to the region. Right. And so, yeah, often people kind of blame the West for mm-hmm. bringing LGBTQ plus individuals into the region or just kind of pushing something on the region that isn't from there. And um, I think that's why it's really important that Pride in Beirut, for example, emphasizes being rooted locally. It's so important for them to highlight the fact that they are from the region mm-hmm. and that they want rights and equality within the region and trying to kind of take the local environment into account in their in their initiatives, in their advocacy, in the methods of support that they provide. And in an effort to really counter that narrative of we do not have any LGBTQ plus individuals in the Middle East. And you mentioned that there were several NGOs specifically in Lebanon working on this. Are they local NGOs? Are they Western NGOs with branches out there? So they are they are local they are local NGOs. Um, all of them founded by local individuals. So yeah that that has been that's been really good in kind of gaining a sense of legitimacy, I guess, mm-hmm. within the local community. And grounding as well, I yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so aside from Egypt, are, there, are there sort of waves going through other bits of the region on this, on this note? I think it's a slow process. I think after 2011, people felt really, really encouraged. So again, this ties into a broader push for civil rights, which is to a large extent what the events of 2011 were. And by 2011, you're referring yes, to... the Arab uprisings. Brilliant. Sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. So yeah, so they were part of that broader push for civil rights. And so you saw a lot of NGOs emerging around that time across the region that have now largely kind of transferred their presence online and maybe cut back a bit on their activities have had to adapt to being more, for example, kind of warning against crackdowns rather than pushing for rights. And you still see, I mean, you still see protests, pro-LGBTQ plus rights protests, like Tunisia, Jordan. And for example, Jordan had the only online LGBTQ plus magazine in the region. Wow. Um, But that also got shut down by the government. And Tunisia, again, protests were... disrupted by the police and individuals got arrested. So you do see, I mean, people are trying. It's a difficult environment to to push for these rights in. But I think, yeah, I think it's kind of a long-term process. But people have been emboldened after... 2011 and I think since then they've they're kind of trying a bit harder to push for their rights and that also you see that I think more broadly just across 
the world really where kind of LGBTQ plus rights are becoming increasingly visible and it's still quite a new thing for not just the Middle East but for Europe and Americas and South America you know, yeah, yeah exactly. large ways of the yeah and I think also it, it can be very easy to think I mean that it's it's still a very new fight in many ways isn't yeah, it yeah absolutely yeah not just in the Middle East but internationally yeah. it is yeah and I think if you look at um, the administration in the US it's just because you feel like you've got somewhere doesn't mean that you can't go backwards. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you are arrested and if you are convicted of sexual acts that contradict the laws of nature, what punishment are you looking at? Um, so it, it varies across the region. Some have uh, prison sentences for between one and three years. Um, some carry the death penalty in Saudi Arabia, Yemen. But it's it's really hard to know how often that is actually carried out. And then in some countries, such as Jordan and Egypt, you do not even have any laws pertaining to same-sex acts. So individuals get convicted under debo- debauchery. Debauchery. Yeah, debauchery or immorality mm-hmm. laws. Um, so that can also have a quite wide-ranging reach which is really dangerous for LGBTQ plus individuals. So the law can be quite indiscriminate. Mm -hmm. And is it harder to be a particular bit of that LGBTQ plus community? You know, is it harder if you're a gay man or, you know, is it about visibility? Visibility is definitely a large component of it. So often if you can keep it hidden well enough, you're not going to suffer any consequences. So naturally that means that some individuals are more frequently targeted than others. Often men are, are larger victims and then also transgender individuals. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite difficult for them to live their lives as transgender individuals without unjustly being targets for, for the police, for discrimination, mm-hmm. just harassment. Although the idea of having to live your life as hidden anyway is pretty awful. Yeah, um, exactly. But then sometimes the risk just is not worth taking. So it is, it is about finding kind of a balance. And sometimes you just have, have no choice, such as a Syrian uh, refugee. A transgender woman. And she, I mean, she's already left her country. And so her options are quite limited in Mm -hmm. that sense. So she's kind of stuck in Lebanon and has already transitioned and just identifies as a woman. And so there's kind of no going back from that Mm -hmm. in terms of like she's, she is happy with who she is and she is out. Um, But it is, it is a struggle and she has kind of, she has been harassed by police Mm. in the past. Obviously, having done, having put on one pride as a city is a phenomenal achievement. But in many ways, the fact that this year there's going to be another one yeah. seems astonishing. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely a sign that things are changing. Mm-hmm. Things are moving forward again. Having the LGBTQ plus um, representation in the women's march, for example, mm-hmm. just fighting for those rights and having that recognition, I think, is important and. Hopefully the fact that it happened last year means that it will be able to go ahead this year mm-hmm. and things are going to be touch and go for, for a bit. But I think just generally, it is definitely a sign that things are moving in the right direction. Yeah, the LGBTQ plus community has shown that it can can adapt to to its environment. It can it can push for, for visibility and for rights as well. And hopefully, yeah, across the region, there will be more space for for them to achieve what they're out for. Ah, what a positive note to end on. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for coming to talk to us.
And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you've enjoyed our conversations this week. The two pieces we talked about will be linked below. And if you're feeling generous, do leave us a review, not just because we need constant affirmation, um, but also because it helps other people find us. And do follow Chatham House on Twitter, at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Undercurrents.